Episode 106, How to Take Personal Responsibility and Help Heal Collective Suffering with Ayana Parents. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful, but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I used my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you. So you can live Life Amplified. Maya Angelou once said, We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. The caterpillar has to disintegrate into a big old pile of goo, my friends, before something beautiful can be reborn and emerge from the mess. And I think that that's such a beautiful metaphor for where we're at right now culturally in the United States, that many of our existing systems and you know both government police systems law enforcement systems uh, as well as our own personal belief systems and the way we view ourselves everything is up for renegotiation right now and part of the difficulty in creating transformation whether it be social change or your own personal transformation is feeling the discomfort without running away from it and that's what a big part of this conversation was this week how do i engage in a conversation about some of the subtle ways racism exists we see the overt signs of racism it's been all over the news with you know the stories in nascar and certainly the stories of police brutality but how do we better educate ourselves to the subtle racism that exists systemically and my guest this week is experienced america from two very different perspectives. I think you're going to be fascinated by the story that she shares. Ayana Parents is a licensed independent clinical social worker and a certified fitness instructor in multiple group fitness areas. And her passion is to work with others in recovery from addictions, trauma, depression, anxiety, and other issues through using the tools of mindfulness, movement, and fun. You can find her online at BeFreeWell.com, or you can also look her up on Instagram at IonaParent. In this interview, Ayana is going to share her experiences growing up as a biracial woman and the very different paths that her white father and African-American mother went down after their divorce. That will lead to a conversation about systemic racism and some of the elements that we're not talking about collectively when it comes to the topic. She'll explain how addiction and recovery within the black community can be affected because of racism. We'll discuss microaggressions. This was one of my favorite parts of the conversation and something I had not considered before, and how they can add up and just create compounded trauma over time. She'll explain to us how living in fight or flight can change how people see the world. We'll talk about how racial trauma can be passed down from generations and add to the world of racism today, and why it's important to take inventory of your own thoughts and feelings to see if you're adding to the problem or being part of the solution. Plus, Ayana is going to give us some tips on what we can do today to become a more powerful ally. If the conversation moves you and you'd like to engage more, you can join us for a discussion in my private Facebook group, The Life Amplified Power Tribe. We have a link for that in the show notes. Or you can screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram or Twitter. You can tag me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can tag Ayana at Ayana Parent. We're talking about how to take personal responsibility and help heal collective suffering this week on Life Amplified. Ayana Parents, what a pleasure. Welcome to Life Amplified. Ah, thanks. 
for having me on. So cool the way the universe works. You know, you and I didn't really have a relationship until about a week or so ago, but I had put out a call on social media saying, hey, I'd like to talk more about the issues that are happening right now in our country. And I recognize I'm a privileged white man and not necessarily (laughs) qualified to have that alone. So I put out this call, you know, looking for coaches of color who would like to share. And then when you responded, it felt so aligned because you're also into the trauma message and you're doing a lot of work as a trauma healer yourself. Do you want to just uh, tell everybody a little bit about what it is you do and what your background is? I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker, and um, I have a studio. I'm from Massachusetts. I live in Massachusetts on Cape Cod, so I have a studio um, called Be Free Coaching and Wellness, and I um, I opened that really to address some of the issues that I was seeing with people around just issues in the body that they weren't able to get out. So the mission of the studio really is to help with movement, mindfulness, and fun. And I <laughs> I say fun because I really feel like if you're going to bring about change and anything, it has to be fun and it has to become from joy. So I designed a whole coaching model that also does that on an individual level and then we just sort of have a community so I use all the social work tools in that coaching model to help with the healing and I do a bunch of other stuff so I'm also trained in um, like pound which is a cardio fitness class yoga I do a lot of stuff with like restorative yoga a lot of movement just the yoga I think is just an amazing tool for healing the body and just understanding issues of trauma You know, when we talk about healing trauma, one of the things that's come up on this podcast before is that trauma happens in a variety of ways. And there's the ways that get a lot of play and a lot of talk publicly, whether it be, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect. But the uncomfortable one that we haven't really talked about is generational and racial trauma. And well, well, we're talking about it a lot right now, but it was one that didn't get play for a long time. And I know that when I think about the things I've said in the past as a white person, when I think about the things I've heard other white people say, it's very easy to sort of go into avoidance around the conversation with, well, well, I don't see color. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it makes me laugh now. (laughs) And I always think, and we can talk more about this later, I always think when white people say that, like what we're saying is is we don't see ourselves as a color or a race. We just see ourselves as people. We're white, right? But we definitely see other people's color, if we're being honest. But you've had an interesting experience with this as a biracial woman that some of your earliest, most formative memories were actually around the idea of race and around color lines. Can you share a little bit of that story? Yeah. So just thinking back, like, you know, how powerful that is, is that one of the one of my first memories of just my identity as a person in the world was around race. Um, so I'm biracial. My mom's passed away, but she was certainly a very independent, proud black woman. <laughs> I would describe her like that. And my dad's white, you know, but he has, you know, French and, you know, different bunch of different stuff in there. So, you know, early on, they were having these conversations about what I was going to be called, you know, in terms of identification. So, Mm. you know, my dad was sort of on the camp of I should be biracial because, you know, I'm mixed and there's, you know, lots of stuff in there. My mom was very adamant that I should be identified as a black woman because, you know, people will see me as a person of color regardless, like sort of skin tone, which is a whole nother dynamic. But, you know, so then I would experience racism. So therefore we would have to raise me that way so that I would understand 
what it was like growing up as a person of color in the world. And they're divorced and like their relationship was like tumultuous. So like <laughs> that was like a very intense conversation. And how um, old were you when you remember this conversation happening? God, in the I, house? No, I was like six, maybe. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, Seven? so what are the beliefs that happen around that, right? Because we know that before the age of 10, the brain is just a sponge. You take in right. all the information unfiltered and you just sort of accept some truths, even if it's misperceptions. Yeah. So at six years old, A, mom and dad are having conflict. It's about me. Right. And, right. and how do I identify? How did that affect you? What did you come to believe and how did you operate in the world based on some of that? I mean, it was a gift and a curse at the same time. So I, they also were very good at like educating me around this stuff. So it was the first clue in of like, huh, the world, like to look at the world larger than myself, first of all. And then second of all, it was like, that was traumatic because then I was like, who am I a, and then B is there something wrong with me? Right? Like, mm -hmm. am it was the first kind of notion of like, I'm not like everybody else. So then that sort of is like, huh, you know, your little six year old brain is like, well, I'm different, and how am I different, and then how does that play out in the world? So it was always, just then became this question in the back of my mind, <laughs> like pretty much forever, until I sort of got to be an adult and then had to do some real sort of healing, I would say healing traumatic work around it, around just how do I identify me personally in the world, and then how do I get really secure in that, and then how do I get grounded in that, and then operate and not be shook by anything else. You know, one of the things that has been brought into the conversation, partially with authors like Robin DiAngelo, who wrote the book White Fragility, sure, is this yeah. idea of what is racism? The bigger conversation that's happening right now is about the system of racism and yeah. how it sort of very subtly, well, subtly to white people, not so subtly to the people of color that I've met, permeates right. every section of our society. So you also have some experiences with your mom that further complicated all this, where when your parents got divorced, you experienced two very different qualities of life yeah. between living with a black parent and living with a, a white parent. For people who don't get this idea that racism is a system, that that's hard to digest, can you explain from your perspective how you saw that play out? Yeah, so it was kind of wild. I mean, my dad ended up, so when they separated, my dad ended up moving to Newton, which is a pretty affluent community, I'd say, in Massachusetts. And, you know, we weren't well off by any means. However, like he did, he had a house, he, you know, had uh, remarried at one point, and, you know, she's white. And so, you know, there, there was that. And then my mom just went down a different path. So she, like, was living with a bunch of other people for a while. She got really involved in, like, drugs and alcohol and just really was, you know, became very addicted. And so that sort of looked like the trajectory of her life. And then she lost her job. She lost the apartment. Um, and then she ended up being completely homeless and was like living in cars and then, you know, homeless shelters for a while. And then so that was sort of like what I saw. And she back then, this is like 20 ish, whatever years ago, <laughs> I'm still young. Um, <laughs> it was the homeless shelters were very strict on access. So right, if you had you had to have a child in order to it was women and children's shelters. So there was all of them were full all of them being people of color, all of them being these little beautiful black and brown babies everywhere. And so I had to show up to show that I was still a part of her life, even though I was living in Newton. So what is that experience? A biracial girl living in Newton among some pretty affluent white people yeah. and then splitting time. Were you living in the homeless shelter with your mom part time? 
So I wasn't like sleeping there, but I would have to go spend like weekends there, like full, full times or days there. Mm. Or like I would go after school and, you know, that was pretty hard. And then I would go to sixth grade and where all these girls were wearing like guest jeans. And I was, I was not, <laughs> like, yeah. I just didn't like, it was just not happening. Um, and so I think that just the dichotomy of that was so fascinating um, in terms of trying to understand, you know, in the world, how that how racism just divides and just I mean, think about the representation of white and black and just sort of how my life played out. You know, it's sort of the stereotypical, my, you know, my black mom goes down the hole and then my white dad. I mean, we weren't rich. I don't want to make that seem that way. However, you know, there's opportunities there for them. Um, and I think I had mentioned this to you before around like access to like health, right? So she, you know, I don't think had insurance when she lost her, you know, there was all these things in terms of her being able to access care through her addiction. You know, all of that stuff plays a role in, in terms of health and, and what, you know, people of color are given or allowed kind of thing. So, yeah. Tell me more about what you, and let's just call it out and have a conversation, right? Sure. What yeah. opportunities were not afforded to your mother and mm -hmm. many of the women of color who you saw living in this homeless shelter, what opportunities were not afforded that might have been more readily available to them if they had a different color of their skin? Yeah, what a good question. I mean, that's tricky to be super specific about because it is such embedded in like the system of like access to what you deserve. So a lot of it too is like, like she certainly didn't fight. She fought for a lot of things, but she didn't fight for herself. So there was a lot of that, like just ingrained in terms of what she deserved, you know, equity around money, like what financially she deserved, you know, so, you know, when she lost her job, there wasn't a whole, it was just like, well, that's it, you know, and the, the global thing around the, the system really is, and I, you know, I had to keep coming back to like mental health and, and just care. And I would say, you know, for black women, that's where they landed sort of in these homeless shelters. And for black men, what you would see with the result of is they're in jail. So I think mm. those are just two, just two examples of sort of like the systematic, how that sort of, how that plays out. And then just getting, you know, losing your job, getting turned down from jobs, you know, not, not having conversations about allowing her back, you know, so the equity there was certainly lost. Um, you know, part of it was due to her addiction, but part of it was, you know, around race and, and different things. So yeah, that's the best way I can explain it because it is really hard to decipher from the system how then that trickles down to the, the actual individual. I mean, although for like police and all that, that's pretty obvious, but. For you, what was the experience then? You know, you're a biracial girl, probably in a predominantly white school in Newton, I would think about. Mm -hmm. And then a biracial girl who also wants to be loyal to your mother and you're spending time. Did you have a place where you ever really felt truly at home in either of those scenarios? Where did you experience that sense of separation or, or how did it impact you growing up? Yeah, what a good question. Like, did I ever feel at home? No, the answer is no, not until I became an adult, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and I'm in recovery myself, so it actually wasn't until I sort of let go of all the my addiction stuff and then looked at how all that stuff when I was younger contributed to my feeling of being lost. Mm -hmm. So I would say like, I, I really just felt lost all the time. And because my mother and I were so connected and so strong, like that detachment there, like she really was my best friend. 
so I didn't go back to the homeless shelter because I at some point was like, this doesn't make any sense for me to then go to this homeless shelter, act like I'm living there, and then go back to Newton where I have like this really nice bed and this yeah, yeah. room. And so I said, no, I wasn't coming back. And she lost her spot. So she was then on the streets. And so that's, I think, where a lot of my own personal trauma came from was mm. I said no to that. And then as a result of that, she was then out of my life for about 10 years. So there was that, and she was living on the street. So she was legitimate, like in a car. Like there wasn't any more like homeless shelter. There was she was living in a car, and the only reason I know that is because this is this is a wild story. This is got to be in my book, but the, your people will get a little caveat here. The um, she was writing to me while she was in the car, like in journals. Mm-hmm. So she would uh, write my name, write the date, and just write all just free flow write. Like I'm in like where she was, and I didn't actually find these until after she passed away when I was cleaning at her apartment. Look, I just say that to say like the attachment stuff for trauma is like so real. And then to understand like the whole, how the race impacted her and she had so much trauma too. So she, I mean, her whole life was, I mean, her, she was, you know, sexually abused, physically abused. I mean, horrific, horrific, horrific stuff. So yeah, just that attachment and and trauma that I had to then work with. You know, I don't think I found home until I found yoga, (laughs) to Mm. be honest. Like I didn't, it was the only thing that made me feel safe and at home in my body. And I just was like, oh, like I I could connect to who I was without having to second guess it based on race, based on gender, based on my upbringing, that kind of thing. Yeah. What a good question. When I think of it through the lens of trauma and even through my own trauma history, and this is something I was talking about recently with a friend, is like, I I get the fact of trauma, right? I, I get growing up in a home where there was physical abuse and there was emotional abuse and there was sexual abuse. And there were many places for me as a white man where I might not have felt safe in certain relationships as a product of that trauma. I might not have felt safe in my, within myself as parts of that Mm -hmm. trauma, but I've never had an experience of never feeling safe in the world. Mm. I think that that's one of the things that comes through when I hear so many of the stories being shared. Like, I, if I get pulled over by the police today, I'm cool. Like, I, I know right. that. <laughs> right. I've You're never had to, to. I've never had to feel like the, the system was against me or that the da- deck was stacked against me. Right, right. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Yes, there's trauma and that can set people back, but there are systems in the country where just the color of people's skin set them way further back. Yeah. So many things just came up when you were saying that. So part of what I work with people too on, and this will talk about my mom too, is just like the addiction piece is so close to the race piece that I think people don't understand, which I think is a good connection to make. Um, Because racism is so heavy and sometimes it's not like the huge it is the systematic stuff that you live with right but then there's these microaggressions that happen over time that really impact the body as a person of color and so because that makes you feel so horrible all the time that's when you relate you sort of go to things like drugs addiction alcohol those Mm. kinds of things and so you have a group of people then that are dealing with racial trauma and the only way to understand that because it is mind-blowing as a person of color like you think white people really don't like me and they're out to get me and they might they're out to kill me and my race right so when Mm. you said like you don't feel safe in the world or like you've never had that connection it's like wow i was thinking like yeah that's a lot of people's experiences as people of color is 
that's my experience. Like I wake up every day being like, how am I going to combat that today? Like, how is that going to show up today? Can you speak more to that idea of microaggressions? Because I think that that's a phrase that people have heard a lot, but they don't necessarily they don't know what it means. They, yeah. they don't know what it is. Microaggressions are also just micro traumas on an ongoing right? basis. Oh, totally. Yes. Exactly. Can you better define what that is, what that term is, and perhaps what it looks or feels like in the real world for a person of color? It's more like the subtle racism as opposed to like the, you know, the covert racism. So it's like, you know, the white person saying, I'm not racist, but then two seconds later, they're making that racist joke that you overhear as a person of color, right? Sure. So it's like, it's, it's that would sort of be like a, an example. But I think what people don't understand is that that just doesn't like roll off your skin, like doesn't roll off you that integrates into your body in a way that you have to like, it, it teaches you that you're bad as a person of color in the world. I was interviewing a woman the other day, she's a black yoga teacher. And we were, we were talking about how that sort of plays out in the yoga world. And like, you know, there's a lot of affluent white people that take yoga and take yoga from us who are women of color, you know, and they're very gracious and all these things. But then there's those things that happen in the bathroom. Like they don't know you're in the bathroom and then they're talking stuff. Oh, <laughs> That's like really about race. And like, <laughs> and you come out of the bathroom and you're like, oh, my God. So, I mean, that, that sort of like a microaggression that could be like, OK, well, I had this experience in the bathroom, but it really is traumatic to us as people of color. Right. I mean, women might be like, oh, shoot, did that just happen? Like, oh, that was like sort of racist, you know, and it's always that like fine line of like they're being racist, but really are that, you know, to them, are they? But we know they are. <laughs> so it's all that that gray area that becomes really traumatic for people of color and builds up over time. So the people of color that I work with, it's like once they hit a so something big happens. So say they get an addiction or something and they get into rehab or, you know, something they have a, a violent action or reaction. And then, you know, you work with them and you, you come down to like and they're like, well, there wasn't this big thing that happened to me. And I'm like, no, it was growing up in America of dealing with watching systematic racism and all these microaggressions that happen to you that feel like at a certain point in time really horrible and the body's done. So they have this big reaction to all these small things that have happened over time that the body and the brain can't take anymore. And so it looks like a big reaction over something that may have been just over over time. Did I explain that? Second? Yeah, I mean, with the microaggressions, I can't even imagine because there's like macroaggressions. Right. So that's that's why it's so <laughs> that's why growing up black in America is so horrible. <laughs> it's not horrible, but like I don't think people understand like the survival tactic it takes in order to just function, right? So you have the microaggressions, then you have the systematic racism that you're watching all the time. Then you're raising a family, right? So then you're a mom of children who then you see all this scary stuff happen to black men and you're raising black boys. And that's just another layer. So it feels like you're in survival mode all the time and there's no way you can, for lack of a better word, just breathe, right? I mean, poor George with the whole, I can't breathe, but it's like people of color can't relax. Ever. Like they can't relax ever. Like they always have to hold a guard up because they may get hurt in some way. If it's not physical, it's emotional, right? So like, that's, that's why it's so hard. That's why you were seeing sort of like this uproar now of like this, this really can't happen anymore. Like this, this is not like, okay anymore. And people, I mean, I'm glad people are speaking up and just sort of taking a, a louder stance on it. Cause I, for a while it's like, then, you know, some people just become complacent, like both, both parties. I mean, not that people of color are, 
you know, are quiet. But I think when you're loud, particularly like I think my mom, if you want to bring that there, too, is like she was loud about a lot of things that had to do with race and people did not agree with her. So I would say certainly that the addiction was maybe why she lost her job. But she was, all, I mean, also very, very loud. I mean, she was like Black Panther proud. She was, wow. <laughs> there was you know, there was not like a silent a silence around her at all around race. It was very clear. We're both heavily informed in the trauma field. And talking yeah. about the nervous system and the toll, mm-hmm. you had mentioned, and I think that this is important, that with the constant microaggressions, from what I'm hearing you share, that the experience for people of color is almost perpetually living in fight or flight. Yes. It's, it's am I safe? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Because you and I had talked about the ancestral stuff and like the background of that. And I, that's always been in my mind since you and I talked to me. And I always know that was a thing and I've looked into it, but I haven't really looked super deep into it. And then as all this race stuff came about, I was just re-looking into that and just how like even from slavery, like how all those things got passed down from the body. So like black bodies having babies, you pass down that fight or flight reaction like you have that fear in your body when you give birth to it like all of that gets passed down so it's and like, it's not a ah! conscious thing right we're talking about like the four oh. percent of the conscious mind versus the 96 yeah. percent of the subconscious that's kind of running the show for all of us all of us at every given time very very true for the white people who are puzzled and the people in the media who want to talk about the protests that mm. in some cases have moved on to the riots, can you give sort of a perspective nervous system wise, if we look at it, not so much in terms of a news headline or an incident, but as we talk about this idea of microaggressions and fight or flight, how is that all contributed to the situation that we find ourselves in today? Yeah, so I think the, the protests, A, are really important because they just lend a moment in time for people to really take action and then to speak up and then to feel empowered and then to say something that is, you know, systematically wrong, like bringing people together. It's really one of the greatest ways to to impact that kind of change in the beginning. Let me say in the beginning, because I've been talking a lot about being very frustrated and not disappointed, but I, my fear is that that's going to dissipate and then that's going to go away. And then where are we? But I think that really does give people an, an action step to take and collectively just be together. And then the difficult piece around the whole like riots and stuff, if, if we want to talk about that, I think it is important to talk about because, you know, you get into this whole stereotype of like they're just being black, violent, angry people, right? Which would be which would reinforce why black people are in jail, which which I don't believe is true. I don't know that we have all the information about exactly who is rioting and what that was, but I do know that Black people are angry, and, and rightfully so, because, like we're saying, they're in this fight or flight, and they, they certainly need to express this in some way. You know, people keep talking about, like, Martin Luther King was kind, and Kaepernick kneeled, and that didn't get us anywhere, right? So people are like, we have to really to really shift that. And just, you know, feel like you're empowered and actually take take action in that. It's not that Black people are certainly violent and ruining all these stores and all that. It's a response to you know, what's been pent up in the body for so long, you know, mm. in terms of just that anger and that the violence that that is occurring, it's fluid. So it's like there's people that are, you know, angry. Some of those were white people. Some of them were, you know, the media kind of skews stuff. So I just 
want to caution people just in general out there to like be careful of what you see because the media certainly is contributing to systematic racism in a way where it shows you certain things so that you have a certain viewpoint. So I think it's just barely people have to be careful about what they what they see on the news, right? So they can you give a, is there an example that you've seen of that that would give people perspective where something has been highlighted a certain way? That when you say the media is part of systemic racism. Yeah. So I always get so annoyed, <laughs> like, right, whenever there's a crime, like in general, and you, the media says this black slash African-American male and then show his face. Right. There's, sure. there, there's no such thing as like this white man then did this and let's show his face. They don't show the face very often to the white man and they don't say he's a white man. Hmm. That happens all the time. And they will say the words over and over again what his race is to the point where, like, I'm just listening to the news and I'm, like, furious. I'm going to turn it off because, you know, and it's like, oh, my God. And they'll exploit that in terms of, like, I, did he do it? Like, what, what, what are we saying he actually did? Like, the language that is used is skewed in such a way to make you think that this man did something violent. But if you actually just really listen back, there was just an incident that occurred. Right. It's not this huge, crazy thing. So that's that's what. And so you'll see that with the protest, too, is that they'll show like black people so angry and one clip of somebody like really going to hurt somebody else. And it just happens to be a white person. Right. (laughs) I remember seeing an example one time uh, that somebody talked about in a documentary. Maybe it was Michael Moore talked about this. But do you remember? I don't even know when it was. There was at some point like since the year 2000 that there was like a really aggressive group of bees that were like swarming and attacking people. But the news story wanted to distinguish why these bees were different and they were African bees that were yeah. hyper aggressive. And I was like, oh my God, I was like, that's oh really God. embarrassing. <laughs> and even if you think right now, like, you know, so much of the culture this year, when we talk about COVID-19, it's been, well, you know, there are people who've said it's the China virus. Well, aren't the murder hornets, the, the murder hornet thing, I believe that we wanted to go out of the way to make sure that those, to make sure that people knew those were Asian hornets that had come over. Right. So there, there's so many subtle ways that it happens. It's crazy. The protests have happened. We mm. know that there's been meaningful change that has come out of this. Oh, yeah, for you sure. Know, police officers have been arrested. Louisville, Kentucky just passed Brianna's Law. Where I know! They, I heard that this morning! That's so awesome! Yeah, so there's, you know, no-knock the no-knock arrest warrants have been banned. We know that the NFL now is finally speaking out and repairing some of the issues here around the Colin Kaepernick protests. It's a start, it's a start. but where do we go from here? There's so many layers to this and that I was saying today, um, I do have a Friday thing that I do on Facebook Live and people have been asking me that question and my response is like, because I feel like white people are in like a panic mode right now, right? So they're all reading White Fragility. There's like book clubs coming out left and right like it's the top selling New York Times. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, good for all of you. I mean, I love it. Welcome to the party, right? (laughs) Like, really? Okay. (laughs) Right? So all that's happening. All these books are, you know, flying off the shelves, which is great, which is all, it's great, right? But then I keep telling people, it's like, you come into a few, like, 
it's when you go to a funeral and then you, you know, you give the people all these food and then you call them and you see if they're okay. Right. And then two weeks later, everybody's gone. Yeah. Right. So it's like, so that's what we're seeing right now is like the white people are really, you know, coming out and really being vocal and being like, yes, we're with you. But my fear is that like for people of color, they're on edge because they're like, is this going to dissipate in two years? And are you going to, is the funeral over? And, and am I just left with more racism? Like in my, because it's so in front of people's face right now. Like people of color can't get out of it. Not that this isn't a good change and it needs to, all of this needs to, but everything you see right now is about race. So even like when I go out to the store, like I'm, I'm very conscious of like, I'm like more than ever, I'm a person of color, like more than ever, because it's on everybody's mind all the time. Right. And my daughter's black. And so, like, I'm in a store and like, what is their perspective on this right now? Like, are they what camp are they on with all of this? Like, right. So it's like it's everywhere. Um, and so moving forward, it's like the things that we really need to do around. So racism is systemic. So obviously there needs to be policy changes made. There needs to be legislation changes made. There needs to be dynamic changes in the police system. However, it's very hard sometimes to separate the system from the person. The history of the police department goes back years and years and years based on slavery, if we want to go back that far, you know, in a way to, in some ways, to control people of color, which is why they're all in jail. So that, I mean, I know that's a broad statement, but there is a clear connection there. So it's un, how do you unlearn like history? Like how do you unlearn all of that? And then for white people to understand that without, and this is the emotional piece around trauma, how to, for white people to start to unpack that for themselves of how do you look at that without shame, right? Because ha half of what's happening is like people then defend themselves. White people are like, I'm not racist, right? Even my husband, he's white. He's like, when you say white supremacy, I think KKK, and now I think I have to take responsibility for all that. You know what I mean? Like, that's where people go. That has been a thing where I've seen, yeah. like, some conservative commentators, well-known white conservative commentators, say, sort of with this argument of we're having to apologize for things we didn't do. That is right. the opinion among some white people. Yes. What certainly. is your response to that? Besides some colorful language? Um <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's important, you know, I think it's important to address to what degree do white people just have to step up and admit their own to do an in, like an internal moral inventory right. and start to get clear on the places where we right. are carrying racism. Yeah. So that was my next step. It's like, let's instead of assuming all the ways in which you're not, let's assume you are. Right. Because if you I was listening to I don't know if you know, like Ibram Kendry, he had a podcast with. Renee Brown recently and he's like does all this anti-racism stuff and he talks about it like when you are born in America like you are infused with all of these racist ideas images like through a system like basically a system is lying to you to uphold whatever it needs to uphold right and so as a white person it's like you from the day from day one you're getting rained on right you're getting rained on all of these things are getting rained on about racism, about who you should like love, who you should protect, who is safe in the world, who you should be afraid of, all those things, right? And then so you have those ideals. And then what's happening now is he describes it so beautifully is like people are putting an umbrella above that so that you'd stop getting rained on, right? So that all of that, we got to look at it just to clear the path of like, it's okay to look inside yourself and say, I am part of a racist system. And that therefore I have behaviors that are racist. Like it's okay to say out loud, 
totally fine. Again, detach from that doesn't make you a bad person, right? Doesn't mean you were the slaveholder. Like people are like, well, I weren't, wasn't in slavery. It's like, what? No, you existed in a system that had a lot of privileges that you took advantage of and then didn't recognize that that was a part of your world, right? And then how do you then create opportunities for people of color to have similar, if not the same opportunities as, as you, which is a long, that's a long haul. That's like, it's a long time from now. That's, but that's where making the systematic change will, will come down. And for white people, it's really, again, like Peggy McIntosh years ago, I learned this in college, like 25 years ago about unpacking your racism. Like you gotta unpack it every day. It's just the same thing as like a black person has to wake up and figure out how they're gonna survive in the world. You have to wake up as a white person and figure out how you're going to be anti-racist. Like that's where the work is. Like that's the kind of change we're looking for. Yeah, and whatever that means. So if that means internally you gotta do that work, internally if you gotta let go of that shame and that guilt to not have a huge reaction, because what happens when people feel so defensive of I'm not racist, it, you, stop, you stop listening, you stop hearing, you stop understanding. So you're not you're not taking action anymore. You just de- and that's that's where white privilege is. Like that's where white privilege lives because you can not look at it. You have you can do that because your life isn't like you're not going to die, right? If you don't, people black people will die if if they don't sort of look at all all those things all the time. So the work really is is on a personal level, and then just getting vocal as white people to other white people about how to continue to unpack it and then and then have those voices right so as white people you have opportunities to have positions of power that can affect change for people of color and because we are still in the system right now people of color it, it takes them it takes so long to get in an office or you know in a anything that's in a high position of power due to racism right because you get looked at as unsmart or you get looked you know just all these ways that racism you know shows itself mm. so it's really the white people really have to take charge so I, I say like white people take charge do your do your book clubs and do you know but then cre- continue to create action together and then you know continue to ask your people of color if they okay and what do they need and then follow through with what they say you know, it's not just do this like, oh, how are you? And I'm going to do, you know, a lot of people have been donating to my studio, which is great, which is wonderful. But I'm still me. Like, I'm still the same person. So because this huge thing happened around racism, now they want to donate to me. It's like, that's great. But what, what are we doing? <laughs> like, right? So there's like that weird, we're doing it to make you feel better. Like, what? <laughs> sure. It's not It's not horrible. It's, it's wonderful. And I know. And so I had to get really specific about, like, when you donate for this specific thing you're donating to people of color so that they don't have so they can take these workshops for free because they've dealt with racism for too long they shouldn't be paying for it and that I can then pay people of color to work with them and pay them a ton of money because they deserve it right so (laughs) I to get real specific about what I was asking money for and then so people did and so then that was like a nice a nice way to understand this is how you systematically change. This is one way in terms of like my personal studio. This is one way that we can do this together. Like I really want more trauma for people of color around racial trauma. I really want to help them heal. But again, I'm just one person and I have to feed my family and all this kind of stuff. But I can certainly hire a ton of people of color that and train them and then have that have like tons of groups for them and have that be paid for by white people. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
what have we not covered today? Is there a conversation that needs to be had that I was not aware of that I didn't bring to the table today? What what have we not covered that is important for people to understand? You know, I think that we we covered a lot. And, you know, I thank you for for asking and, and not being afraid of like my response or the real the real answers. I think what I was talking with uh, Michelle Johnson, who's um, just a wonderful yoga teacher, too, is just around collective suffering and that one way we can actually move forward um, is to move sort of, and I know everything is politics and that's part of the system and all this kind of stuff, but people also make up those things as well. The conversation has to really, all people have hearts and we can, we can connect and all people have emotions and same thing with people experiencing trauma. And I've been sharing the story of, though the example of that that I have is when I was in a protest uh, last Friday and it was huge and it was on Cape Cod and it was beautiful. And, you know, they had, we had to kneel for the eight minutes and 45 seconds, which A, is just so long. Like when you do, you physically do that act, it's so long. Mm. And I was uncomfortable and I'm pretty fit and like teach yoga and all this kind of stuff. So it's not like... <laughs> You know, I was un super uncomfortable and I had this moment of not wanting to get up because I wanted to honor George and all the people of color that have died to, you know, had lost their lives due to racism. And I didn't want to get up and I, you know, but it was so uncomfortable. And then I saw this white man in front of me and he was older and um, you could see he was having a similar experience where he was just so uncomfortable like trying to sit on your knee for that long. And, and there's nothing you can think about when you're in that position that isn't his face, isn't like, oh, my God, what his body felt like. Like, oh, like it was, you know, all the tenderness of a neck, like all those things. He cried out for his mom. All those things come up and, you know, and there's silence and there's just a sea of people in silence. And he, like, didn't want to get up because I think you know, he just wanted to be in that space. And instead what he did was he just put his hands in the grass and he just started bawling. And every time I talk about it, I start to cry. And I just was like, there it is. It's like there is the collective. He's feeling in his heart and in his body what people of color feel like every day. And that if we can tap into that collective suffering together, I really think we can move in a way that really allows for some real, real important and deep change together. That is a beautiful story. I thank you so much for sharing and, and a really powerful way to end this conversation. If people want to find out more about you and the work that you're doing, where can they find you online? The easiest way is um, BeFreeWell.com is my website. I'm all over social media. So it's just Ayana Parent. And you can find me on Facebook. BeFreeWell is on um, Instagram. And I have a YouTube channel too. It's just Ayana Parent. You can search that. It'll pop up. And um, all the conversations around um, this kind of stuff and, and wellness and movement I and mean, the importance of that are, are included in there as well. Thank you so much for your time. It's not an easy conversation to have. <laughs> yeah. But it's such an important conversation. And sure. uh, yeah. I appreciate you making the time for me today. Sure. Thanks for asking. I spoke in the opening of the show how difficult it can be just to sit and engage in a meaningful dialogue around racism. And one of the things that I really appreciated Ayana sharing is after we finished taping the episode is in many ways she was as uncomfortable as I was. She didn't want to come on my podcast and say something to offend me. And it's so funny because over the course of my career, starting with my radio background, I've interviewed people like Jay-Z, Taylor Swift. This in many ways was one of the most intimidating interviews 
interviews I ever did because I was afraid of saying the wrong thing as well. But I so appreciate Ayana just being raw and real and being open to share her experience. I hope maybe today it's created a little bit more empathy and helped you understand the current situation that we're facing socially in a different light. If you love the conversation, if you'd love to talk to us about it, you can screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram to your stories, tag me at CSC Dan Mason. You can tag Ayana at Ayana Parent. Uh, you can also engage in more conversation in our private Facebook group, the Life Amplified Power Tribe. We have a link for that in the show notes. And if you're looking to get your 2020 back on track and create more purpose, meaning, and fulfillment at work and at home, I do have one spot available right now for VIP. Coaching, you can get more information on that by visiting my website, creative soul coaching.net. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening. It's an honor to serve you. And in the meantime, turn down the volume on your negativity, turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I'll talk to you next week.